Galatians 4, verses 1 to 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, both of woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. It's good to be with you. If you're visiting this morning, we normally have the wall behind us open, so there's a little bit more room usually. And, uh, and uh, so that's why we're a little con- constricted here this morning. My name's Glenn, by the way. I'm a lead teaching pastor here at the Rock Church. I'm happy to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who are visiting, maybe first time with us, you have walked into a very interesting Sunday morning message. You're welcome in advance. Uh, some of the people who are part of the Rock, most of the people who are part of the Rock Church, uh, pretty much thought that last week I dug myself a very big hole. Uh, in the subject that we've been talking about, and, and I did, and, and it was intentional because... Uh, I, I want to say this in preface to today's message for everyone in the church um, and for those who are visiting, and that is this, is that um, we, we are touching on a subject here that is touchy in our culture and, sub, and world today, in the church especially today. And our purpose at the Rock Church is, is really more than anything else, and it's the reason why we go through books and letters of the Bible verse by verse, is to be faithful to God's Word as best we can. And so we're not a perfect church. There is no ch- perfect church. If you have joined a church recently, it's no longer perfect. Amen? Right? So, so I just want to say in advance that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree and have a different opinion on these things. Um, and, and, and so we love them, and we pray that they would also love us. But, but our role and our, our heart is, especially in what we've been in in Galatians so far, is to appreciate the authority of God's Word. It's not my authority. It's not the Rock Church elders' authority. It's not that. It's God's Word. And that's where we're at. So before we get into this, trust me, I need prayer, <laughs> and, and so do you. And so let's, uh, let's ask God to bless us one more time this morning and be with us and guide us. Heavenly Father, I just thank you and praise you for this day. Thank you so much for an ability to be able to come here, set aside time uh, from our busy lives, which are really nothing in comparison to how busy you are and always have been and continue to be. And so, Lord, we're just grateful that we get to come here and worship you, sing those beautiful songs of praise to you, um, to have fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to live out the great commands of Jesus, which is our, our to love you first and foremost, and then also to love one another and be loving towards one another so that we can model that kind of love to this world. So, Father, I pray today. Holy Spirit, I pray. I pray today. Give me the words. Give us the hearing and the understanding. Let us be faithful to who you are and to your word. And Lord, help us to understand it so that we can actually live this out in our world today. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. So, so today we arrive at uh, Paul's great half conclusion to the first half of this amazing letter. We've been in this since the beginning of January, taking it rather slowly, verse by verse. Um, and it's, it's been great. We, we've seen from the very beginning then the first two chapters 
Paul felt it was necessary, writing to the churches in Galatia that he was very worried about and very concerned about, that he was astonished that they were believing this other gospel, which was not a gospel at all. It was false teaching, and he was worried about them. He felt it was necessary to give them a little bit of his own biography, his own testimony, testimony about how he, in fact, came to Jesus Christ. And so the whole point was is that, look, the gospel that I'm preaching is the true gospel. I've confirmed that. I didn't do that early on, but I've confirmed that by going to Jerusalem and meeting with the apostles, and they heard the gospel that I'm preaching, and they're going, that's it. It's the same gospel. And so he was concerned because there were these men who had come down from Jerusalem, uh, they're termed Judaizers, who were preaching a false gospel. They were saying, yeah, you know, Paul's a good guy. You know, we really, you know, Paul, even though he was, you know, once he was a faithful Jew and now he's, we don't know what he is, but he's a good guy and he's got most of it right, but he's missing something. He's missing something. He's actually preaching easy believism. And that is, is that you just need Jesus. You don't need the law. You don't need to be a Jew. You don't know. In fact, they were preaching that you needed to have works of the law in order to be saved as well. In fact, you needed, especially those men that were there, you needed circumcision. And so at first blush, when you look at that, you're like, well, they're, okay, they're just adding to Jesus and the gospel, which is bad enough. But the reality is they're not just calling into question Paul's apostolic preaching authority. They're calling into question the authority of God's Word. And that's how, how we've been progressing as we're going through this letter, going, let that not be us. Let not that, that be us. So we have to approach God's Word carefully and, and understandingly and, and without any biases that come into our minds because of how we've been raised, um, because of the culture, which is a huge challenge today and is really the main point of this that we're looking at anyway. So we learned early on in this letter that the same pattern that Paul was up against in that day, that people were questioning his teaching, which was really the authority of God's Word, has continued throughout history. All the way up to the point of the Reformation, it was like, Peter, 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 you know, forget Paul, Peter, 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 right? And then all of a sudden, it's Paul, and, and, but from that point in time, from the days of the Reformation, 500 years ago, Paul's preaching and teaching has been the biggest concern for many people in the church. And, and if you read online, which you can today, unfortunately, far too much, most of which is not necessarily biblical, Paul is the, the center of attention. And the reason is, is because, well, he's really black and white, you know. I mean, he wasn't Jesus. He's very black and white. And sadly, he has this attitude towards women. It just, it just seems like he has a bias for men and against women based on the language of the Scripture. So for the past two weeks, and in the hope that we will not miss the actual goodness and the beauty of God's plan and his reasons for the words that the Holy Spirit gave to Paul to write so that we won't miss that beautiful truth. Paul is revealing... I've, I've been taking us down two excursus, which are like little journeys off the subject, for a specific reason, and that is, number one, we would understand the relationship that we today as believers have with grace alone, faith alone in Christ, and the law. And the law. How that relationship continues as believers in the church in this world. Now, we're not going to get to finish that one today because most of you want to have lunch. Uh, so we'll, we will hit that one next week because actually next week's three, four verses that we will look at really lean into that one more. And the other excursus, of course, has been around the use of male, masculine words and, uh, that, that, that we see in the Scripture. And today, that w- from the reading you just heard, how many times did you hear sons, sons, sons? It's repetitive, right? And so again, I want to make this point. Um, it's important for us to look at these words 
Um, not so that we can deconstruct them and replace them, but it, it, it's true that I think for most of us as Christians, the, the starters, I think we just need to acknowledge that every single one of us, male and female, when we come to the Word of God, we notice this, don't we? Let's just be honest about it. We notice brothers, brothers, sons, men. It, we notice the, what appears to be on the surface, a gender bias. It's, it seems to be always about the masculine. I mean, especially if we're using a literal Greek translation like we do at The Rock, which is called the ESV. There's lots of good translations, but that's a literal one where the translators are basically saying that's the Greek word equivalent in English. And so if we're using those, we, we see this. And so as Christians, we can sometimes, I think, get worried about how our unchurched, non-Christian friends um, will feel when they hear all this male-leaning language. Uh, especially when they also hear antiquated ideas like wives submitting, right? Things like that. Uh, and men's and women's roles in the home and in the church. We get a little nervous, don't we? Anybody? Come on, seriously. Don't we get a little nervous? I get nervous. I'm preaching this to you, right? We get nervous about the idea that we somehow have to explain that, don't we? And what happens is either we, either we can explain it from God's Word and, and, and with our heart behind it, or we can't, and therefore we need to somehow homogenize this with what is going on in our world today. And so this is this antiquated thing. I mean, it's also not only about wives submitting and husbands' roles, but also there's this word patriarchal comes up a lot, and, and it's like, well, it's very patriarchal in nature. And of course, if you read about that, it's like, well, patriarchal, whenever you hear that word, it's always bad. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that today. God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always in the He. Why does he do that? <laughs> and, and yet I know, we all know that God is neither male nor female, but that's how he reveals himself. And so it's up to us to know him for who he is and how he reveals himself. And so I, I want to suggest to you today, this is not a new thing. And I'm going to go down some roads here that are going to push us because they push me. It's not a new thing. This is exactly, by the way, what gave wings to the first wave of what is called the radical feminist movement, which began in 1830 and ended approximately, I'm talking generalities here, in 1920. As we saw last week, we, we arrived at this time in history when Time magazine actually prints a cover that asks the question, is truth dead? Well, we have arrived at that point in history not because Time magazine has just noted that thanks to the new president of the United States, there's alternative facts and nobody knows what the truth is anymore. But we've arrived at that point in time and this point in time in history because of a movement that began 500 years ago, and it's called the Enlightenment. Back in those days, as I said last week, the Enlightenment philosophers looked at what was going on, which was basically Christians warring with others about the absolute truth of God's authority and law. And the philosophers in that day said, well, this is a problem for human flourishing. This isn't good. You know, people who think they've got the truth, the law of God are killing people, <laughs> and other people who think they've got the law of God or a better law are fighting those people. And so the Enlightenment movement was birthed out of the idea that, you know, the problem is God's law. The problem is the Bible. And, and, and it really became a, a movement that became secular humanism and, and, and relativism that we have today, and it was a result of saying, this isn't good for human flourishing. We need to find a better way. And, of course, that better way was... Uh, secular humanism, relativism. 
And, and so the, the other thing that's true is, is that this movement that we have today, this, I would suggest, I use the word gently, feminizing of the Scripture and of the church, is also nothing new. Uh, two of the most prominent suffragettes in the United States who began this movement uh, over a century ago uh, were Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And it's interesting that the movement in the U.S. began in the church. It actually began in churches. Stanton herself uh, has written many times, and she was one of the authors of the original woman's Bible, which is really not a Bible. It's a commentary that actually denies the divinity of Jesus and denies the inspiration of the Scripture. But she, was, uh, she described herself as a Christian, even though she didn't believe that the Bible was inspired by God, and yet she identified herself as a Presbyterian. But here's the point that I want to make on that. Like the philosophers of the Enlightenment, she and others at that time saw the Bible as the problem. They saw in their reading of the Bible that the Bible was all masculine, the Bible was patriarchal, and the Bible was the reason why women were being exploited and hurt and, and held down, couldn't vote, I mean, equal pay, forget it. It was way worse than that. Major abuses were happening in the home, in the church, and of course in the culture. I mean, so the, the original heart, I want to just make a, a point here for most of you. Many of you will look at me and you'll see this guy who's 5012, which is 62. Okay, okay. And I can't say it, okay? I just did. And you see, you know, white pastor, older guy. I just want you to, if you can just imagine a picture of me at 18 years of age with bell bottoms and a tie dyed t shirt, very long hair, played in a rock and roll band, marching in downtown Toronto for a women's liberation parade. Please understand, okay? There are many things that happened through that movement which were necessary, but I want you to see that the, the genesis of it, what was behind it, the purpose of it, behind it was the liberation of women from the Bible, from the teachings of the Scripture. And that's how what we have today in the church really got birthed. It really did. It got birthed through that. And so we, we have this predominant use of male language, and I think one of the other points I want to make to you before we dive into this passage today and also the points on this is I think we look back and we, we've become a little arrogant in our enlightened 2017 144-character Twitter world, haven't we? We look back at the New Testament writings in the days of the New Testament and go, you know, Paul, it's kind of old school, you know, he had to write it the way he did because, like, people would kill him if he made women completely equal in the church and all the rest of it. And, and so we look back at that and we go, it's metaphor, it's, you know, and we try. I was in a seminary class a number of years ago. Most of you don't know, I was in business for 30 years and got called to um, um, pastor and plant this church uh, 12 years ago. And I remember being in this amazing seminary class. R.C. Spencer was a biblical church tradition. We went back to the birth of the church in Acts 2.42, went through all of the early church fathers. And he, he set aside one week where we were going to come into the class and he was a pretty brilliant guy, and for a Newfoundlander, that's amazing. Uh, and he, he was, he was brilliant, fantastic guy. And the whole week he dedicated to this question. He says, I want you guys and gals in this class to answer this question. Why did God choose to send Jesus into the world in the time in history that he did? And we're like, is there an answer in the Bible for that? <laughs> like we, we, at first we were like, we don't know where to go. I don't know, how do you answer that, right? And so it was interesting. There was a lot of silence. We're looking around going, uh, things were messed up. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a joke. But, but, but it is a joke because think about it. I mean, do you honestly think that God sat back there and said, you know, hey, Jesus, you think it's time? 
You know, that thing we were talking about where you would go and you would die for the sins of the world. Hey, what do you think? Is it bad enough yet? You think it's the right time? Uh, you know, and as we went through philosophizing this and biblicizing this and thinking about it, we thought, wait a second. There are so many reasons based on the Old Testament why God chose a time when Romans were crucifying people on a cross. Friends, please understand that God chose directly and specifically to send Jesus into the world at that time, and that much of what we read in that time about the early church and the way that they lived and the way that they intentionally wrote wasn't just metaphor that today we can write off. It wasn't. It was pictures and types of not only what God planned in the beginning, but also what happened then and how things are going to get wound up in the future. It's a beautiful arc that God has planned. It wasn't by accident. So I say that because it's so important when it comes to the veracity and authority of God's Word. It's at no time in history is God's Word passé. There's no point in time where the Holy Spirit wrote something and said, and later it goes, people will figure out this was just for them. I don't believe that's the way it was written. And that's how our class really confirmed that. And so we've arrived at this point in history of the church where many people have never heard Galatians 3.28 preached the way I preached it last week. I had people come up to me afterwards last week and say, I have never heard Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither free nor slave, no male and female. That is different than the first two. It's pointing back to Genesis. I've never heard it preached that way. In other words, in context. And that it has nothing to do with men's and women's roles in the home and the church. It has to do with our oneness in Christ, not our sameness. People never heard that. But we arrive at this point. Now, earlier, I had planned earlier, this is kind of a, I'm going to have to do a little bit of a skip for you. We have a, a new elder in training that we want to introduce to you. We're going to wait two weeks, not necessarily a week, but the week after because his wife is not well this morning, and we'd like to introduce him as an elder in training to you together. And so I was going to read, actually I will, I was going to read just quickly as I would introduce him, which we normally would, introducing an elder into the Rock Church, I would read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I would read these words that start with this. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's the Greek. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, uh, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, nor a lover of money. He must, ma- he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, etc., so what happens in our world and our culture today is if we take Genesis, pardon me, Galatians 3.28 out of context, use it as our filter to neutralize and gender neuter, neuter the Bible, here's what you end up with. This is from the uh, Common English Translation Bible that is used in a lot of churches today. It's becoming more and more popular, and this is their translation. It says this, this saying is reliable. If anyone has a goal to be a supervisor... Now, that's an interesting translation of overseer, but that alone is, and look at all of the days. What I've done is I've highlighted the days because that's usually where a male word is. A supervisor in the church, they want a good thing, so the church's supervisor must be without fault. They should be faithful to their spouse, husband of one wife. Sober, modest, and honest. They should show hospitality and skilled at teaching. They shouldn't be addicted to alcohol or be a bully. Instead, they should be gentle, peaceful, and not greedy. 
They should manage their own household well. They should see that their children are obedient, on and on it goes. Now, here's my question for you, for every one of us in this room. Are you okay with this? Are you okay with that? Are you okay with taking the Bible, and because you have a problem, or I have a problem, with the gender aspects of the Scripture, are you okay with changing the Bible? See, friends, when we, when we decide that we're going to change the roles in the church, this is what we have to do. We have to change. And so, how hard is that? Well, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to teach this into our culture today. It's hard for you to receive it. I understand some of you. Maybe some of you are like, preach it, brother. You know, somebody, please. Uh, okay. It would be helpful. Uh, thank you. That was a guy. Okay. Just so you know. Future elder in the... Let me, I'm going to go. I'm going to take... No, he really is. He's the guy. Uh, so let me take a little aside for you, ladies. This is for your benefit, okay? Um, I want to suggest that this to you. Men love radical feminism. They love it. Now, you know my background in marketing and culture and psychology and watching people's behavior. Men love it. You want to know why they love it? Men love radical feminism because it's like, you go, girl. You, know? you, you, want, to, you want to get into that Zen yoga thing? You, the zenier, the better. You go do it. You, you want to get into social justice, and you want to take the kids to church, and you want to do this, and you want to do that. I, I'm with you, sweetheart. Like, I'm, I'll back you to the hill. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I'm behind that. You know why? Because I'm going biking. I'm going climbing. I'm going to go do something else. But, honey, I'm totally behind you. I'm with you. Men love this. I'm not going to get into all of the sexual issues either and the freedom that that comes that brings that. But men love it. They really do. They, 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 they love it. So I'm not sure this is news to everyone here today, but men don't really want the responsibility to lead in the home and in the church, do they? Is that a surprise to anybody? Men don't want that. They really, really Have you ever asked a man this? I mean, think about it. Have you ever asked any man that you know, did you ask God for this? Did you ask for the responsibility the Scripture gives to men to be the leader, the headship in the home and in the church? i got to tell you, I'm going to give you a little bit of breakdown. I would call it 70-15-15. I'm going to say 70% of the men in the world would say, and I know pastors shouldn't use this word, heck no. 70% of the men in our world and the culture, and maybe 55-60 in the church would say, I never asked for this. Are you kidding me? That's a lot of responsibility. Commitment. Yes, it is. Maybe that's why God knew we needed it. But that's how I think the majority, that's how I viewed it many, many years ago when my, my wife basically said, this is your job, buddy. I'm not taking the kids to church anymore. And I was going, but I, I got a tee off time. <laughs> that's actually what happened in our family and in our home. It was my wife that said, that's enough. You need to step up and you need to lead our family. I think there's another 15%, and this is why people get so bent out of shape, and I get it. There's 15% of men out there. Maybe the numbers are higher. Maybe the numbers were higher in the past. I don't know, but I think it's only about this today in the world, in the church, where men hear this and they go, right on. Yeah, this is right. Men were, were designed by God to be the leaders, and they become abusive, and controlling. And listen, that's not manhood. That's, that's a bully. Let's just call it what it is. But just because there are a percentage of men who do that doesn't mean we can... But, you know, here, here's the other thing. There are a percentage of men, probably about 15%, hopefully it's growing, hopefully that percentage is wildly higher at the Rock Church, 
who when they hear the truth of God's Word, of who they are supposed to be as men in Christ, they're like, yeah, I get it. Oh, yeah. I didn't ask for it, but I get it. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. He sacrificed everything for me. He took all of my stuff. Now he wants me to love my wife in this way. That's what he wants to do. I get it. I want that responsibility. I'm going to take that on. So men, those of you who are here today and hear this, I got a very serious question to ask you. Very serious question. It's kind of violent in nature, but, and if you're hoping to be a, a husband one day, the same question goes for you. Would you literally take a bullet for your wife? There's an intruder in your home, and, and, and they have a gun, and the, 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 she's in the line of fire. Would you step in front of your bride? Remember that word? Would you step in front of her and take the bullet for her? Now, I know most of you, I know many men in this room, most of you, are manly men. And you would go, yeah. I mean, it's not just that I'd have to. That's what I have to. I, I've got to do that. I would do that. Let me ask you a follow-up question. If that in your heart of hearts is actually true, then why today are you killing her heart, paper cut after paper cut, by not being the man in the home, in the family that you're supposed to be? Because that's what we're doing to our wives. I'm not, I'm not pointing any fingers at any of you. I'm guilty, have been guilty. Continue occasionally to paper cut. This is serious stuff, I know. So secondly, one of the other reasons why I know that most of us men didn't ask for this role is because every year I put up a screen and put it out in the e-newsletter and say, looking for elders. <laughs> We'd love to have some elders at the Rock Church. Step up, guys. woo Be leaders. You know, I read the scripture, and there it is. There's the qualifications. Most guys go, oof, pretty heavy qualifications. They are. They're actually not the qualifications just for elders. They're the qualifications for men and women, are they not? I don't mean for the role in the church. I just mean as disciples of Jesus. Those are the best qualifications. But the reason why I know that is last year, zero people stepped forward for eldership in the Rock Church. This year, one did and is being invited on to the elder board, and another has been praying about it. So that's another reason why I know that this is just not the case for men today. So that's our preface to some of this. And so what I want to do now with you is I want to dive into the words, and hopefully we get concluded really shortly here. So let's look at, look at Paul's language and see what we might be missing by focusing too much on the gender neutrality issue instead of the heart behind what Paul wrote. And so hear this, also the Holy Spirit is bind him to write. If you look back into Galatians 3.15, you'll remember this verse. It said, to give a human example, brothers, right? Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, I mentioned at the time that the ESV has brothers with a little asterisk up top there, right? And if you read down the bottom, it says, or sisters. The NIV translates it brothers and sisters. And listen, in general, at different times, it's not a bad thing that translators do that, although most preachers would rather, word-by-word uh, word, faithful preachers, I'm going to suggest, would rather the translations just translate the words, right? And not add commentary, and so it's not always wrong, but here's the question I want to ask you. If we're so always concerned about the gender neutrality, and, and I've actually had people come up to me after some sermons in the past, because I do it a lot, where it only says brothers, whatever, I'll say ancestors. And I've had actually not just men, but women come up to me and go, don't know why you're doing that all the time. You don't really need to. You know, we get it and we trust it, but not everybody does. But here's what we might be missing. What if Paul is actually in this particular verse or any other verse actually only addressing the men? You know, we, we just want to fly by it and go, I had 
not gender neutral. It should be brothers and sisters. And when the pastor says it is brothers and sisters, we're all happy. <laughs> what if he was just addressing the men? After all, this was a story about Judaizers coming down and saying to the men, you needed to be circumcised. So what if, what if he was addressing it to them? Well, if he was, we in fact might be missing. Here's another one in 325, and this is a key for us today as we go into our passage, is this. 325 says this, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons. You are all sons of God through faith. Now, in your Bibles, there should be no asterisks. <laughs> there should no, be no other translations that say sons and daughters. And this is the hard part. It's hard for me, too, when I first look at this, and I'm sure if you're a woman here today, you're going, well, wait a second, you know. It is clearly, as Tim Keller said, because I listened to him on this as well, he said, it's sons of God. We are all in Christ Jesus, sons of God. It's male, plural, it's inclusive, but we should not be translating that. So how does that make any sense? Well, Paul shows us this in this passage, but also I'll show you through conclusion what he is saying. So I've actually titled the message today, We Are All Sons of God. We are all in this room sons of God. And I want to show you the three things through the passage briefly, and that is this. Number one, it's about our coming of age. Number two, our adoption is secured. And number three, our adoption experience. Galatians 1, uh, 4, 1 to 3 again says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we are, were children, that is the Greek word children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That last part we won't spend a lot of time on this week because it comes up again next week, and it's awesome. So if you look at these opening words here when he says, I mean that, he's referring back to verse 29 of chapter 3 where he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So, so once again, he has this pastoral impulse, Paul does. He's got this pastoral impulse to give a human example, just like he did back in 3.15, which we, wrote, which we read. His pastor's heart is he wants to show them in that day and us, I believe the Holy Spirit does, what God has actually done, how amazing his grand narrative and story is. So in very simple terms, he uses an illustration uh, that in human terms, they would have completely understood in their culture and context, and I'm going to suggest not merely metaphorical, right? The word child is used, however, but it's preceded by he, and so it is male-oriented, but Paul is moving us towards his beautiful conclusion here. So what we see here is the use of the word heir first. For the first time in the previous verse, in 329, we see it, then we see it here, and also we'll see it uh, in verse 7 at the end here. In these first three verses, Paul uses this human example to prepare his brothers and sisters in Galatia to realize and experience what God has really done, and that is this. He has adopted all of us into sonship. He's adopted all of us into something called sonship. And again, as a couple of commentary writers and preachers that I listened to on this said, not daughtership. It's a sonship that we've been adopted into. That's important for us to accept and see. And so these are really the two great themes at work here. It's about adoption and sonship. So here's the thing. In their culture, this is what it would have meant, uh, 
uh, which was predominantly a Greco-Roman culture. Only a son could be an heir. Now, that was in a secular, pagan culture that only a son could be the heir. Where did they get that? Did they make that up? No, they actually got that from the patriarchal Old Testament, the people of God. This was the way God ordained it. That's the way it was to be. And so even the, they are basically following this, this model, only a son. So there was a process for their, quote, coming of age. A Roman child heir was a minor. It was called their minority or their coming of age time until they were 14. And they were still to some degree under trusteeship until about the age of 25. And, and that was even if, you know, their father had passed away, the inheritance would come to them, but not until they're 25. They wouldn't get it until then. So not until then could the, could the youth, could the child, the adoptee, exercise complete independent control over his own affairs and estate. And so now again, this is a point where some say, well, see, this is just a cultural metaphor, all well and good, but that's all it is. It's just a, a cultural metaphor. And so no, that would be missing this. In most ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Therefore, son, sonship literally means legal heir. There's something about this sonship thing that makes you and I, yes, men and women, male and female, legal heirs to the inheritance that God has for us. And so that's a very important point that we need to see here. Therefore, son meant this, as I say, legal heir, which was a status forbidden to women. God chose a time in history that although a Gentile pagan system was the exact same system as the patriarchal Old Testament teachings about who was the legal heir and sons. So now we, are, we know this. We're all one in Christ. So both men and women are legal heirs, but as sons. So Paul's main point in the example or illustration uh, that is before us, is their coming of age during their minority years. They were children of the Father, but they were equally slaves until that day. And the people of Israel had the promise, right? They had the promise of Abraham, uh, but spent a very long time in their minority, in slavery, in bondage. And that's the same for us today, when we are in the world, slaves and in bondage to the elementary principles of the world. So there's, there's a picture here, there's a metaphor of what it means, yes, about the picture of Israel, how they went from the promises of Abraham through the law until Christ. Until Christ. And now they are sons of God. And the same for us in our day and age as we, we come to faith in Jesus Christ. This picture is a beautiful thing that God is showing to us. And so this is about, number one, our coming of age. Number two is about our adoption being secured. This is so beautiful, this picture here. Verses 4 and 5 say this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent. Mark those words. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So after the period of our minority, that time of longing and hoping for our position and inheritance to become a reality. And in the history of the people of Israel, that was a long minority, was it not? It is Jesus, it is Jesus who makes you and I come of age. It's the work of Jesus, everything that the Son of God has done that helps us, makes us come of age. 
So I think I highlighted it, but you should notice the similar words that we'll see in verses 6 and 7. God sent. First, he sent Jesus, born of a woman. Interesting. Man, from the Genesis story, is made by God from the dust of the earth. There's no woman involved in that process. She comes later. And yet in this picture here, it's, it's important to be noted that Jesus comes, born of a woman, born under the law. So Jesus is sent, born of a woman, fully God and fully man, that means, under the law. And Jesus was born into life just like you and I were, under the guardianship and the obligation of the law. The difference, of course, we all know between you and me and him is he kept the law perfectly. He perfectly kept the law. And so he came with a purpose, which was to redeem us, right? To redeem us. The word here is the same as in 3.13 and literally means to release a slave from his or her own owner by paying the slave's price. That's literally what redemption means. So again, we could look back at that and we say, well, that's, that's such a great metaphor that God used and he didn't see it coming, but he's used a great metaphor in the Old Testament to make that point. No, <laughs> that point in history was very important because that's exactly how you and I are saved today. That's the same relationship that we have for our redemption. So here, the slave's master is the law. Jesus pays the full price that the law demands. He completely fulfills all the law's demands on us. And since he is the only one to ever do that, he is the only one to be able to set us free. Amen? He's it. He's the one who can do it. And based on that is again. So it gets even better than that, though. It gets better than that. He came not just to redeem us, which would be great, redeemed, freed from the penalty of the law, but we still have this life, and we still have a future, and we're still going to die It's better than that. The NIV, actually, I think their translation is, and others would agree, commentators would agree, that it's a better translation in the sense that it says that we might receive adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship is actually one Greek word, and again, it's a legal term from that day, but again, much more than a metaphor. In the Greco-Roman world of that day, a childless, wealthy man Uh, could take one of his servants. So he doesn't have a son. He he might have a daughter, but he doesn't have a son. So legally, he cannot give his inheritance away. So instead, he can pick from one of his servants, one of his slaves, a male, who legally he can give the inheritance to. And that's that's what that literally means, that word means, and it's giving a picture to him. And so at that very moment that that child is now adopted by this father, this wealthy father or father that has some kind of inheritance, at that very moment, he's no longer a slave, but legally, legally an heir. Though by birth he was a slave without a relationship with a father, he now receives this legal status of a son. It's a new life of privilege. It's a remarkable metaphor, yes, for what Jesus has given all of us. This is sonship. This is sonship that you and I, male and female, possess. We possess sonship. We are all sons of God. So third point is this, our adoption experienced. And and I love this because, again, it's it's God's love and plan perfected in everything that he's done. Yeah, do, do we need to be redeemed? Of course. Are we grateful for adoption and for our inheritance? Of course. And so we have it. You have it right now. 
If you're in Christ here today, you have, first of all, your position in Christ is perfect. It's the only way that God sees you today. He doesn't see your sin anymore. He doesn't see your mess-ups anymore. He sees you as perfect and loved and approved and accepted. We own it. And yet we live today in another form of minority, don't we? We're waiting for the day when we actually get our inheritance. And yet God is saying, well, wait a second. I'm not done. I sent Jesus, and here's why I sent the Holy Spirit. It's so that you could experience your adoption today, so that you could live in light of your adoption today in this world. He says, and because you are sons, that this means you've, you've come across the line of salvation and you're in Christ, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts. The Spirit of God's Son causes us to cry out to our Abba, Daddy, Father in prayer and in worship and in admiration, gives us that access to Him. It's incredible what it does. So you are no longer a slave. You're no longer. You may feel like it from time to time. You may even act like it from time to time by going back into the elementary principles of the world and putting yourself back under the law, as we will see next week and conclude that other point. But you're not that. If you're a son, you're an heir through God. Is it possible for you to live that way today? It is. It is. And experience it? It is. How? Holy Spirit. You know, we, we, I, it's a terrible joke, but I joke that we're charismatics with seatbelts. We've got to stop saying that, right? We, the Holy Spirit is alive and well today. We need to lean into him. Paul's going to get to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is he not, in this letter The Holy Spirit is what he's going to now include for the rest of the letter, and it's beautiful to see. So let me conclude here for you today, because I think it's time. Friends, ladies in particular, uh, please hear this. Um, Here's the amazing part to all of this. This is a way I'm seeing it, and I hope you do today. In, in this church age, we, we know this. We're a family of missionary ser- servants at the Rock Church. We live as Christians in the family of God. That, that's God's design. We didn't make this up. That's his design that we, we'd be in this family relationship in this world today. All of us as his children. And all of us as men, women, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, grandparents, kids, modeling the kind of relationship and family that God wants for all of us. What's interesting is, for some reason, the leadership, the headship role, Scripture's pretty clear, God is given to, for the home and the church, to imperfect men. Got the T-shirt. It says imperfect. Why did he do that? I could say I have no idea, but I do. Because his word tells me why. It's because he wants to show us something more perfect. It's all a picture of his perfect plan for us as men and women and how we can live in eternity with him. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, Therefore a man shall leave his wife and mother and hold fast to his his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where's that from? That's from creation. It's from another passage too, but it's referring to creation. This mystery, this is from Ephesians, is profound, Paul says. Now, I said in prayer this morning earlier, it was profound to Paul and the church at that time because he was just writing this. We now have the finished canon of Scripture, which means we have Revelation 19, 20, and 21 that tells us from John's amazing experience being taken right up into heaven and seeing directly what was going to happen in the end, 
We know now how it winds up. It's no longer a mystery to us, but it was. It refers to Christ and the church. What does? Marriage. Marriage. The family. So in 328, that verse that is so often taken out of context ends with the words, I mean, we all get caught up in the Jew and the Greek. Actually, we don't. We're getting caught up today in the church with the male and female thing. You think there's a gender issue going on in our culture today? Yes, it is. It's huge. But we get caught up on that, but it ends with these beautiful words. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, again, the literal Greek there is one person. And it's at this point that I think God is saying through his word, and I'm pretty clear that I think God's view is, your gender isn't that big a deal, guys. I've given you your maleness and your femaleness because go forth and multiply and a few other reasons that they're supposed to be a picture of, but you might be making too much of that. You might be making too much of that. You're all one person in Christ. We all started with one man. So in Christ, God sees us all as one man. He sees you, ladies, and me, a man, as who? Jesus. He he doesn't see us as a feminine version of Jesus or a masculine version. He sees us as this person, as Jesus Christ. He's given, uh, you know, (laughs) I know before I close, I've I've got to put a little bit of a bow on this for you, so let me try to do that. Ladies, he's given you a role in the marriage relationship with the gender of female woman, yes. But not just as equal. Better. Bride bride. That's really the role that he's given to you. You are to be a picture in your marriage relationship to this world of what God has in mind in the future kingdom today. That's what our confused world needs to see about our genders and about our masculinity and femininity. Revelation 19.7 says this, let us rejoice and exalt and give glory, give him the glory, for the marriage of the lamb has come, his bride made herself ready. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. Amen? So, men, listen up. (laughs) You've been placed into your relationship in marriage as the husband. It's a title, not so much, it's really not a title so much about a position, and certainly not about your status. Your role is about responsibility, And that is why God came looking for Adam back in the garden. Uh, He didn't go looking for Eve, even though she was the first one to take the bite, the guinea pig for Adam, because he was a wimp. But, I mean, God comes looking for Adam, holds Adam responsible. It's a picture, guys. We are the ones that God holds us responsible. He held him responsible. Uh, You are also to be a picture to this world in your marriage relationship of our future husband, whose name is? Jesus Christ. So ladies, let me ask you this question. How do you as a wife today, for those of you who are married, those of you who wish to be one day, hope to be, model for this world the role of a bride? How do you model submission, oh boy, to this world as the bride, as the church models submission to its head, Jesus Christ? How do you do that? How will they see it if we obliterate God's rules? How will the world see that if we say, that doesn't matter anymore? Really, in every way and in every place, how will they see it? It would be an interesting discussion. I'm sure that will be held this week. 
So men, how do you do that? How do you model Christ, his husbandry to your wife? How do you model it so the world sees Jesus, the perfect husband, to his bride, the church, which is one person in this whole picture? Finally, if this isn't really great news, ladies, (laughs) please think about how it all ends. Guys, again, listen up. One day, as the one person that we all are in Christ, you too will be a bride for eternity. You guys ready for that? Dudes, are you ready for that? Seriously. You will be a bride for all of eternity. We will be. We will be brides for all of eternity. We will all be married to a man for eternity, which is why it's so important that God was born of a woman, fully God, fully man. Do you realize this? Again, when we were in seminary, we dug this apart because it's a little bit mind-boggling. But do you realize, yes, in a glorified body, that Jesus now is a man for eternity? He's a man for eternity. And so as I look forward, I've read some good books about heaven and so forth, trying to figure out what it's going to be like. I'm not sure there's going to be golf there, but, you know, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be way beyond anything we could ever dream of. But what's our relationship going to be like? We know we're not going to be given in marriage. Why? Because the marriage of the lamb and his bride is going to have taken place, and that's going to be the ultimate marriage. How is all that going to unwind it for eternity? Here's the last thought I want to give to you on this, is we need to see this as a beautiful picture. Not only do we have the Son of God, whom we are heirs and have the inheritance of sonship together as one person, man and woman, with Jesus eternally, a man forever, we are also now invited into the good and perfect family patriarch relationship with our Heavenly Father as our patriarch for eternity. I think if you investigate what heaven's all about and his role in heaven, that's who he is. That's, all, that's who he's always been. And so I think our, our view of that word needs to be refreshed. I pray as we uh, conclude, and I'm going to pray again, that you will allow God's word to ask yourself this question. What might it look like if women were to be more concerned about men flourishing in the world today? What would it look like if men were mostly concerned with seeing women flourishing in this world? You know what the enemy wants us to do? Is compete with each other. Women just worry about women flourishing and men just worry about biking. Men flourishing. What would it look like if it was the other way around? Is that not the model that Ephesians 5 teaches in 6 about how we are to react or relate to each other as men and women in the marriage relationship? seek the flourishing of the other? What would that look like if we modeled that to this world today? Pray with me, would you?